When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Buddy Holly. Ben Hur. Space Monkey. Mafia. Hula Hoops. Castro. Ed's a Lizzo No-Go. You too. Sigmund Rhee. Sigmund Rhee. Who's this character? We're gonna find out. Hello again, and welcome to episode 76 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the history podcast based on Billy Joel's pop opus, the one that set the syllabus to school us on the headlines, heroes, and villains of the late 20th century. I'm Katie Puckrick. I'm Tom Fordyce. Tom, I'm wondering how we got to where we are today. Billy thinks it might have something to do with Syngman Rhee. Syngman Rhee, you're nodding. You're doing that. You're, you're doing that like tight-lipped nod, where, yeah. where it's like I don't really know what you're talking about. I had no idea who Sigmund Rhee was before I started researching this episode, Katie. <laughs> now I know a little bit more about him. He may be the most nefarious of all the various nefarious characters that we've come across so various far. Various nefarious. You know what? I before I looked him up, I thought perhaps he was a. Reggae superstar, Singman Rhee. Sounds like, uh, I mean, I was hoping he was. Now, of course, we've touched on Korea several times already, thanks to Billy and his obsession with that part of the world. So a related episode might be North Korea with the academic Sojin Lim, who talked us through the personality cults and state-approved haircuts in the Hermit Kingdom. Yeah, and then we had the episode on South Korea, didn't we, Casey, with the author Mary Lynn Bracht, who discussed the so-called comfort women who were brutalized as sex slaves during the Second World War. Yeah, oh, heavy stuff. And then, of course, we had Panmunjom. That episode featured the delightful Colin Thackeray. So wonderful. The Chelsea pensioner, who is a Korean war veteran and a Britain's Got Talent 2019 winner. Remember he sang It's a Wonderful World? Beautifully. (laughs) So great. So Syngman Rhee, Katie, he's the first president of South Korea. Mm. And the reason he pops up now in Billy's song is that in April 1960, there is a great revolution against his autocratic regime and he is forced to flee. Mm. But so much more happens, Katie, than I have just let on. And here to explain all about it, our guest today, Owen Miller, who is a lecturer in Korean studies at SOAS, the University of London. That is the School of Oriental and African Studies. Welcome, Owen. Hello. Have I done him a disservice calling him nefarious? Well, there's plenty of those kind of characters in the 20th century, aren't there? I mean, I don't know how he would rank among them, but there's certainly... uh, some pretty nasty things on his record, I think, if we look at what he he did while he was president of South Korea. But if we do the black and white version of post-war history, he would appear, certainly in American terms, to be one of the good guys. Yeah, he was on the US side. He was more or less picked by the US to be the leader of post-colonial independent South Korea. And he was a staunch anti-communist, 
He was always pro-American throughout much of his life, lived in America for a lot of his life in Hawaii and other parts of the US. Uh, so yeah, I mean, he was definitely one of their guys. And, and as was often said, many of their guys were also bastards, right? <laughs> it's so funny how you know, the Americans aren't that fussy. The bar is pretty low. It's just like, uh, are you against the USSR? Great, come on in. Hang on, you speak a bit of English. We like you. Yep. Yeah, can you set the scene, Owen, uh, in South Korea at the beginning of Syngman Rhee's leadership? I mean, of course, there's a lot going on. It's the end of World War II, four decades long of Japanese occupation. But um, what's the lay of the land when he comes on the scene? Essentially, you have the, the whole problem of a post-colonial country, which you had all over the world after 1945. How does it you know, find its feet? How does it become an independent and, and hopefully wealthy, successful country. But then you have it complicated by the fact that it's occupied not by one sort of liberating army, but by two, by the Soviet Union in the north and by the, by the US in the south. And without going into the complexities, over the course of the few years after 1945, those two occupying armies, those two occupying military governments, basically set about establishing two new countries. Not something that the Koreans wanted. Obviously, no one really wants their country to be divided in two and have two completely opposing governments. Uh, but that's what happened. By the end of 1948, you have established two separate states with two separate political systems, two separate leaders, everything completely separate. By the summer of 1948, Syngman Rhee has become the, the president of the new Republic of Korea. And how has he found himself in this position? Because, Katie, this reminds me a little bit about our episode about Charles de Gaulle, who, when we started that episode, I assumed had always been a central figure in French politics. Then we found out that he was sort of right place, right man, pushed himself forward. Feels a little bit similar with Syngman Rhee, who, Owen, doesn't really seem to have spent that much time in his native land in his formative years. Yeah, I think that's true to an extent for him. It's also true to quite an extent for Kim Il-sung, the first leader of, of North Korea, who was essentially installed by the the Soviets in a similar kind of way. Yeah, how does he find himself? Well, he was one among quite a large number of nationalist leaders. Koreans had been resisting fighting Japanese occupation and colonial rule for for decades, and in many different ways, in many different political tendencies, moderate nationalists, you know, the far left, the communists, all kinds of things in between. And they had been resisting it both within Korea, in exile, in Manchuria, in China. Syngman Rhee obviously had been in the US for most of that time. So he had really been part of the exile, not even a nearby exile fighting yeah. in, in China, but a long way away in, in Hawaii, halfway across the Pacific. The type of nationalist agitation and he had been doing was lobbying. You know, he had been lobbying the US government to support the cause of Korea. I mean, essentially, the US had betrayed Korea at the beginning of the 20th century by more or less approving Japan's colonization. Okay, so he's very patriotic about this idea of getting Korea back for the Koreans. But also, there's a whiff of maneuvering, positioning. He's always agitating for power. I mean, does he have Korea's best interests at heart or his own best interests at heart? That's hard to know, isn't it? We can see this in so many leaders. On the one hand, they seem to be motivated by great principles, but by, by nationalism, by some other kind of political ideology. But on the other hand, you can see this innate uh, drive for, for their own power and belief that they're the ones who can achieve or to realize this particular goal. No one else is going to be able to do it in the way 
that yeah. I can do it. Yeah, right? so that Trump, I alone can fix it. And also the thing that's a bit ifty-wifty for me is the fact that he did skate off to the U.S. and he was educated there. I mean, of course, I guess that's why the Americans were comfortable with him installing him mm. as, as the leader. But was he just trying to align himself with who's the big dog in the world? I guess it's the U.S. That's where I'm going. I mean, he had he had quite a lot of problems back in, in Korea. You know, oh. he was already a political figure in the 1890s. He was a a uh, fairly leading member, not the leading member, but a leading person within this first independence movement in the 1890s. Uh, while Korea was still nominally independent, but it was it was being encroached on by Japan and by China. And he was a figure in that. And he eventually ended up getting imprisoned by oh, okay. the Korean government itself. Oh, I see. Uh, he got out of prison a few years later. And that's at the point when he, he went into exile, came back to Korea again, had to go back into exile because the Japanese took over. So, yeah, he did sort of abandon the country, but but so many Koreans had to do that in different ways okay. because of the repression of the Japanese. Does it make a difference to his character and, I suppose, to his policies, Owen, that he is a committed Christian? Yes, I think his Christianity was a driving force from a, from a very early on. You know, he became a Methodist in the 1890s when he went to a Methodist school in Seoul. And I think that's what led him eventually to go to America, to get the rest of his education in the US and to become really a very pro-American person throughout his life in the sense that he was very pro the American system. He saw it as the sort of ultimate kind of realization of Christian ideals of liberty and individual liberty and so on. And so in that sense, his Christianity and his politics were quite meshed together. But also, you know, when he became the first president of South Korea in 1948, he, you know, avowedly wanted to Christianize South Korea, which is quite a crazy idea. You know, this is at that time very unchristian country dominated by Confucianism and Buddhism. Um, and the idea that you just sort of turn a country in East Asia into a Christian country like that is, you know, it showed he had a sort of missionary zeal about him uh, as well. Yeah. Talk about making a cross for your own back, pardon the pun. Yeah. And he, he you know, he, he apparently um, wanted in the first National Assembly, which, you know, he arrived as a president, he wanted to lead off the opening of the National Assembly with a Christian prayer, which is a very strange thing to do in a non-Christian country. South Korea is now a much more Christian country, something like 25 to 30% of the population are Christian. So perhaps that is partly as a result of his his ambition. I heard that he wasn't actually all that keen to be leader, that they kind of surprised him with this offer. Like, you're going to be so excited to hear this, Singman. You'll never <laughs> guess. And then he was a bit like, what? Actually, I don't know about that is story. Is that my drunk history yeah, no version No one it could events? well be true. But no, I, did, I didn't know that. I mean, it's worth remembering that even at the time that he came back in 45, he was already an old man, right? He was already, what, oh, yeah. seven? at that point. So perhaps, oh. you know, being leader at that point was not so much on his mind. You know, perhaps he thought he was already past it, but actually turned out that, that he wasn't. It seems that some parts of the US government were keener on him than others, Owen. So he is flown back to Korea after the Second World War on General MacArthur's personal plane, mm. which is quite the endorsement. Mm. But at the same time, the US State Department regards him as, quote, a dangerous mischief maker. Yeah, there does seem to have been a bit of a division between the sort of the, the intelligence services. So I guess that was the OSS and then later the CIA. I mean, they seem to have been quite in favor of him, from what I can make out. State Department, not so keen. 
I don't really know where that comes from. Possibly it's its personalities thing. Possibly it's a thing that they were just by that stage already quite annoyed with him constantly bugging them about, you know, the independence of Korea and, you know, it's like, leave us alone. We've got bigger problems here. Yeah, yeah. that's called pester power. Pester power, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he was described as acerbic, prickly and uncompromising, which actually could be good qualities in somebody who's a leader. Yeah, I think the uncompromising thing is something that's come up a number of times. I mean, we're probably getting ahead of ourselves a little bit here, but if you look at what happened with the Korean War and his just inability to countenance a compromise, to countenance an armistice even, not not actually a a peace treaty, he wouldn't even um, sign the armistice. So you, that's why you essentially have this situation where South Korea and North Korea have not really ended the war. Tom, the thing about doing this podcast, it reminds me of this dog I just once dog sat for. And I remember that you could take him for games of fetch all the live long day and he would have energy to beat the band. But if you put him through his paces with his tricks, he was sacked out after five minutes. And that is how I feel after recording a podcast. I just it it just taxes my brain. I'm so kind of tired and enervated. And that's why I can't wait to have a big gulp of this. Katie, my eyebrows are now on the ceiling. Let's spell out for the listeners at home who can't see what you're talking about. We should maybe paint a picture. Katie, you're holding a glass of a particularly vibrant green drink. What is it? <laughs> Tom, I'm so glad you asked. This is my Athletic Greens multivitamin. And after a day of toasting my lobes, as you mysteriously like to put it, around the fire, boy, do I need it. Katie, I have heard about this stuff. Is it tasty? How are you finding it? Well, it's tasty, but it's also really convenient. I don't have to take a bunch of different pills. All I have to do is just drink this one beverage, and it gives me all the vitamins I need. Better energy, better gut health, and that helps everyone around me. And it actually tastes pretty great. It doesn't taste, you know, healthy. It has kind of a mild tropical taste. Am I getting a slight note of pineapple wafting across the table, Katie? How do I get my hands on this stuff? <laughs> well, you can get your tongue around it um, because I have sourced a deal for you. So with your first purchase on the Athletic Greens website, they're going to give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D, which is crucial for your immune system, and five free travel packs. So start booking your travel tickets. All you have to do is use the code BILLY. B-I-L-L-Y. So head to athleticgreens.com slash Billy, B-I-L-L-Y, and get your mitts on this fabulous deal. This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Hello, Fire listeners. It's Tom here. I hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people we talk about in this series definitely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way that your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. 
With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Fire listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com WDSTF, as in, we didn't start the fire. So, that is betterhelp.com slash WDSTF. Eat stress-free this spring with Factors' delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Always fresh and never frozen, each meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. I eat flexitarian, so with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. So, last night I had the Moroccan-style almond-crusted salmon. It was absolutely delicious. These are no-fuss, no-mess meals. Factor eliminates the hassle of prepping, cooking or cleaning up. Simply heat and savour the good stuff. With over 60 add-ons like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks and smoothies, there's plenty of options to help you stay fuelled and feel good all day long. Plus, you can customise your weekly meals and pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 and use the code WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code WDSTF50 at factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. He doesn't seem to waste much time once he's elected as the first president of the Republic of Korea. The crackdown seems to start pretty quickly and it is brutal. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you've got to take into account here that that really pretty much since 1946 at the latest South Korea had been in a degree of turmoil and most of it was focused around left-right confrontation. Communists had a lot of support in South Korea and you know essentially there was a process under the US military government and then continued by Syngman Rhee's government of trying to suppress that communist support and it was a bloody process thousands of people died in that process and it you know it eventuated in certain level of guerrilla warfare even before the Korean war broke out in June 1950 so it was part of that process uh, he continued some of the work to suppress that the American government had already been doing but he took it further you know he introduced the national security law perhaps that's one of his most infamous contributions it's a essentially a law that makes it illegal to praise the enemy and it's still on the books in South Korea today it's still a limitation on freedom of speech in South Korea there was a guy when was it 2012 I think there was a guy who South Korean guy he's a comedian and he was like retweeting satirically North Korean state propaganda like as a joke like isn't this silly he got prosecuted under this anti-communist national security law for 
basically sort of promoting the enemy's propaganda. Oh. Um, so you can't, you know, there's a lot of things you can't do in South Korea to this day, and it dates back to the law that he introduced in 48. Here's where I'm confused. Was he installed by the Americans and then was elected president? I believe he had been a, a major figure in the sort of interim legislature which the Americans had introduced. So some kind of uh, representative body which they had introduced back in 46 or 47. He was an important figure in that. At one point, the Americans got really fed up with him. They tried to find another person or set of people to replace him. That all failed. They ended up back with him again. But by the spring summer of um, 1948, they actually had uh, constitutional elections. Then he was elected by the assembly, essentially. So he's the first elected president of the Republic of Korea, or as I like to call it, rock, (laughs) starting in 1948. And he just kind of went the extra mile and declared himself president of all Korea, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound. Of course, Kim Il-sung also did the same from his perch in North Korea. Was Korean unification a goal of both North and South Korea? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they both believe themselves to be the the legitimate government, legitimate state of the entire peninsula. Basically, the two Koreas still believe that. I mean, to a degree, they've come to recognize each other a bit over the last, what is it, 70, 80 years. But still, essentially, they believe they are the legitimate government of the entire peninsula. So it goes right back to that time with Syngman Rhee. And yes, both sides wanted to reunify. I mean, you've got to remember at this time, this was a completely artificial and bizarre situation for Koreans. We've been divided. We didn't have anything to do with this. It was the Soviets and the Americans decided this. In like half an hour, they just like put... They just drew a line on a map. Drew a line on Um, a map. I think it was in the State Department in, in, in Washington. They just drew a line. On the that, 38th parallel. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And 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 Stalin decided to accept that, and he, he took his troops down as far as the 38th parallel, no further. And, um, yeah, so it was a completely artificial situation. Neither side, neither the people, the leaders, anyone saw this as a, a permanent thing or a natural thing or something that was good. So, yes, we can say both sides had this sort of aggressive stance that they wanted to reunify the, the whole peninsula by force if necessary. But that's not very odd when you look at it from the time that it was in. Syngman Rhee talked openly about marching north to, to reunify the peninsula, i.e. an invasion of the north. He didn't do it. He couldn't do it. He didn't have the backing of the US, which is the difference with Kim Il-sung. Kim Il-sung managed to get the backing of Stalin to carry out his uh, reunification. Which then led to the Korean War. His conduct during the war is interesting as well, Owen. He seems to talk a good game about how he's never going to leave Seoul and then very quickly changes his mind as the troops from the north <laughs> overrun the capital. Suddenly, whew, He's gone. Yeah. Yeah. No, so, I mean, they had to retreat very fast south. Basically, the Republic of Korea army was not well prepared uh, for the invasion from the north. The northern troops seemed to be better trained. They had a lot more experience. Many of them had been fighting in the Chinese Civil War on the communist side. They had better tanks. They had better morale quite possibly as well. Uh, Essentially, the ROK army collapsed in the first few weeks. And I, yeah, I don't think he had much choice but to flee south. In the process, his army blew up one of the major bridges over the Han River in the center of Seoul, basically blocking other people's uh, evacuation from the, the city. So by the time the Korean War starts, I mean, he's 
already presided over rebellions and uprisings and protests a go-go. Did he have any support from the people? I mean, imagine being uh, a Korean in the Republic of Korea rock uh, at that time and thinking, oh, great, this nightmare is our leader and now we're at war. Yeah, I mean, it can't have been a great situation to be in. But, the, you know, the, the, the country in those few years since since the end of Japanese rule had really been divided, really been polarized in this way. So I think, yeah, I'm sure you did have people who supported him. I'm sure you did have people who were staunch anti-communists and believed anyone like him who's going to fight the communists, that's good as, as far as I'm concerned. You had, for example, emigres coming down from the north uh, in, the, in the late 1940s. They'd had their land dispossessed. They came down into the south and they formed a really strong bastion of anti-communism in the south so yeah you would have had people who who supported and i guess wartime creates a certain degree of support but i guess he was almost quite a paranoid anti-communist in the sense that he basically at the beginning of the war rounded up tens of thousands of political prisoners and had them executed um, and that's still a crime that's being uncovered now. I mean, literally, as we speak, excavations are still going on in South Korea. He seems to have tried his hand at corruption quite early and become remarkably successful at it in that he manages to bleed the Americans for pretty much everything he can during this period. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's often his, his government in the 1950s is really seen as one of, of corruption. Now, I don't know how much that was personally due to him or the sort of circumstances. I think it's often said that when you have a government that's so entirely dependent on aid, that in itself tends to breed a corrupt situation. But there may be that he was always a little bit fast and loose with with money and so on. I mean, in fact, it's something that's kind of remarkable about him that he he was also thrown out when he was the the president of the Korean provisional government in 1925. I mean, not a, a role with any real power, but he was impeached from that position, I believe, partly because of he was accused of uh, some degree of, of corruption. So perhaps he always had a little bit of a loose idea of the boundary between public and private and so on. Yeah, the sticky fingers. I was quite taken with this detail. Sigmund Rhee's fervently espoused anti-communism captured the imagination of rabidly anti-communistic Americans Godfrey Burns, a future poet laureate of the state of Maryland, described Rhee as, quote, unmoved, unbowed, like a redwood tree in his, <laughs> in his poem, Salutations, Singman Rhee. And the author and journalist Kate Holliday poetically described Rhee as a branch in a tree that is too high for the pruners, waving defiantly in the breeze. And yet another poet laureate, this one Milford Shields from Colorado, described Rhee as a diamond well-fused and amber-flamed, <laughs> and closed his poem with the couplet, yours is the torch that men and stars move by, your spirit is Korea flaming high. This seems just so insane from our perspective now that people were so exercised by the very existence of communism that even this guy who seemed a little dicey once he you know, don't even scratch the surface and he seems just a little bit fast and loose. But, you know, people are writing poetry to him. It's marvelous, great material. I mean, that, I've never heard those poems. They're really good. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the age of McCarthyism, isn't it? I mean, you know, it's all about the paranoia. It's all about the really kind of fierce, sort of hot paranoia about about communism and the uh, tribalism that ensues. Yeah. yeah. So when uh, poets aren't brown nosing him furiously in that sort of post-war period, where, as you say, I mean, the war hasn't officially ended, but it has, to all intents and purposes, ceased. 
he then seems to really get going. In terms of the corruption, he doesn't seem to do much for the economy of South Korea. Yeah, so the, the period of the 1950s is often seen as a bit of a lost period for South Korea's economy. I mean, perhaps it's unfair in the sense it was recovering from quite a devastating war, and it's always compared with the sort of late 60s, 70s, when the South Korean economy completely took off under Park Chung-hee's rule, and with very particular circumstances in both cases. So, so, you know, I'm not, it's not that like I'm letting him off the hook exactly, but I think that the, the circumstances were quite difficult. So there's a kind of languishing feeling. There's, there's one or two films made at that time which really capture this kind of sense of a country that's languishing at the bottom somewhere. It's not really making the kind of progress it needs to make. There's one called, a great film called Stray Bullet, or Baltan in Korean, and it's just about life in Seoul and everything's a bit decrepit and there's the shanty towns and it's such a contrast with modern Seoul but it's they, they sort of deal with the, the country, a country recovering from war with a corrupt government with no sense of a way forward and, and a clear vision for how the country's going to get out of this mess, just living off aid, basically. Yeah, because the U.S. government supplied their entire budget. Is that right? Basically, the government's budget came almost entirely from U.S. aid. And the the U.S. aid, a lot of it came in the form of uh, wheat, sugar, and it was then sort of recycled into the economy through businessmen who were given particular preference by the Syngman-ri regime, presumably because there were backhanders and so on involved. And to some extent, though, that's the, the origins of the modern-day Korean conglomerates, the Chebol, which are sort of famous around the world. Um, some of them have their origins early, but a lot of them have their origins in that era and in the sort of recycling of U.S. aid into the economy. I'm interested in Syngman Rhee's relationship with his Austrian wife, Francesca Donner. It seems like she was actually a, a true partner with him in their work together. Yeah, as I understand it, she was an interpreter. Uh, she was a language specialist and she was at the League of Nations meeting in 1933 in, in Geneva where they met and seemed to have this whirlwind romance. Huge age difference. I mean, 25 years, I think, difference between them. Yeah, that's pretty hefty. Just all seems quite unlikely, but clearly something sparked between them. And she then did, I believe, work more or less as his secretary, help him with his all his work and his affairs and just be at his side as this sort of loyal figure for a long time, right up until his death in 1965. Does that help him with the Americans even more? So he has been educated in the US, he's lived in the US, he speaks very good English. He's now got a wife who is perhaps more acceptable to certain Americans than he may have chosen. All the way through this, I'm trying to work out at what point the Americans would have ditched him. Like, mm-hmm. how much corruption is too much corruption? How many massacres are, are too many massacres? Yeah, I mean, well, going back to Francesca Donna, I mean, I guess it, it may well have helped. You know, she apparently did not speak Korean. I don't know whether she spoke Korean later in life, but certainly at this point in the sort of 40s, 50s, she did not speak Korean. She spoke English, so she wanted to be around people who spoke English. She was, I think, quite friendly with quite a lot of the American officials and so on. So, yeah, but with, with the Korean public, it was a bit more of a problem, it seems. You know, she's never been a great loved figure among the Korean public. I don't think she's a sort of hate figure either, but considering that she's the first first lady, she's not particularly celebrated in Korea. Despite that, she still moved back to Korea in old age and lived the last part of her life from oh. 1970 until she died um, in Seoul. So... She obviously had an affection for Korea. She tried to present herself as a as a Korean first lady wearing traditional Korean hanbok clothes at state events and appearing by his side, but it didn't 
seem to endear her in the end. Yeah, it didn't work. The pandering didn't work. So post-Korean War, Syngman Rhee's desperate struggles to stay in power, you know, uses bribery, there's police harassment, there's restrictive electoral laws. How does that sit with the better educated, younger and more urban Koreans? Yeah, so he began to have problems there. You know, I mean, there was always a political opposition to him, which he just kept, you know, suppressing in various different ways, sometimes quite violent. You know, one of the most famous cases was a sort of left-leaning opposition figure, Jo Bong Am, who was basically killed by the, you know, or executed by the Syngman Rhee's government. There was always an opposition. But then, yes, also you get a new generation of younger Koreans coming up who are not prepared to accept this corrupt and authoritarian figure. They want more democracy. I've often thought, and I say this to my students that there's a certain kind of way in which he and his government in the 50s began to dig their own grave because one of the things they did do and one of the things they are still credited with is really expanding the South Korean education system. If you ever go to Seoul today, you, you can't walk around a corner and, without bumping into a university. I mean, there's just the higher education system is, is massive. They expanded in the 1950s, the elementary and secondary school education system massively. Illiteracy was basically wiped out. In, in a quite a short space of time. But I think in doing that, they created an educated class and a more educated middle class who were not prepared to accept the kind of paternalistic, stifling authoritarianism. Yeah, because he passed a bunch of crazy laws in 1958, effectively turning South Korea into a police state uh, where criticizing the president was a no-no and the secret police could whimsically arrest people for whatever. So this is already, I think, setting wheels in motion for what happens next. People often say he got to the stage where he wasn't really hearing enough voices from the outside either. So he was just believing in his own uh, mythology. I can think of a few people like that today, but I won't mention any names. But, you know, th th this happens, doesn't it, repeatedly with, with leading political figures. And he began to believe his own nonsense, let's put it that way. And I think that was sort of writing on the wall, really. There's usually a problem, case at this point for an unpopular leader, and that is that at the next opportunity, they will be voted out. But, Owen, uh, Syngman Rhee seems to have taken a leaf straight from the classic dictator's playbook here and decided to fiddle the elections. Yeah, I mean, he seemed to become a master at all kinds of election rigging. I think one of the things here he had was he had the, the national police force on his side, basically. They seemed to have been bought, really, by his regime, and he could use them. So, I mean, one of the things that happened was ballot stuffing, you know, just putting in hundreds and hundreds of votes for yourself or your vice president into the boxes. So, yeah, it was a sort of ostensibly democratic system on the surface, but actually all kinds of means were used to prevent any other outcome than the one that he wanted, basically. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to. 
but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about one rigged election too far. What happened in 1960 when he ran again unopposed, but also felt the need to rig the election for his vice president? Yeah, so he ran unopposed because his opponent, um, he died not long before the election. Convenient. Rather convenient. But I mean, I don't think there have been any accusations of uh, wrongdoing there, but it was very convenient. um, And so there was no opposition figure to stand against him. But it was with the vice president election that they then went ahead with the election, you know, the full election, but it was fully rigged. And some of the evidence about the rigging began to come out. I think that's what really did for him. And then that began to lead to protests, protests leads to violence, and then uproar began to spread. And very much what you see with the beginning of these protests in sort of February, March 1960, before the main revolution happens in April, what you begin to see is really young people coming out onto the streets to protest. That's one of the things that I've always found so fascinating about the April revolution. It was led by university kids and school kids. And you see the ages, you know, the pictures of, of some of these kids. It's absolutely amazing. You know, like 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds out on the streets. <gasps> really? You know? Yeah. Wow. And that's phenomenally brave. If they've grown up in a country where repression has been around them every single day of their lives, to be doing that at that age is extraordinary. And it's, it's also a country where we're told stereotypically all the time that young people have to respect their elders and it's oh, yeah. the Confucian way to sort of, you know, show respect and not to protest against your, your elders. But this kind of gives a bit of a lie to that in a way. So how does this nascent revolution gather pace? So one of the key events is the discovery of a body of a student who had been killed in some of the early protests in the southern city of Masan. And he had been killed by a, a tear gas canister Interestingly, something that happens again once or twice more in South Korea, sort of long road to democracy. Uh, another student protester was killed in 1987 by a tear gas canister, again leads to a huge outcry. But that, that happened fairly early on in the protests. And as I said, it's in the southeast of the country in Masan. The body of this student is discovered having been, the police had thrown the body into the harbour and it's discovered. And that leads to just a huge outcry in the press and among the public. And that then begins to lead to much bigger demonstrations in Seoul, in the capital itself. The date that's given as the beginning of this revolution is the 19th of April, 1960. And so the protests lead to violence, leads to a student massacre. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so when there's this big demonstration, the students start to march towards Singman Ri's actual residence in Seoul, near the center of Seoul. And the police come out and begin to fire on student demonstrators. Over 100 were killed on that day. I don't know how many were killed in the total process of the April Revolution, but that day is often seen as the bloodiest and, you know, really the day that, I suppose, turned it from a protest into a revolution, really. Yeah, and so the police were under Syngman Rhee's thumb, but the army wasn't. Yeah, I mean, here you see something that's paralleled so many times in the 20th century and even into the 21st century. I mean, I think of like... When I was teaching this to my students a few years ago, we, we were learning about it at the exact same time that the um, revolution in Egypt was happening. And you see such similar kind of processes. The police will go out and, and will, if necessary, attack demonstrators, even shoot demonstrators. The army's always 
much more of a difficult thing to push out onto the streets and to get to kill their own people. I mean, it's just always that knife edge thing. Will they, won't they actually come and and kill, you know, they're, they're trained there to kill the enemy, right? Not to come onto the streets and kill their own brothers and sisters, mothers, fathers, and so on. So why now? Why is this the moment that Syngman Rhee can't resist? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I suppose, you know, a lot of pressure had been building up in the 1950s, you know, and as I said, there had been opposition going on all the way through, which he had suppressed and suppressed. I think a number of other factors, as I mentioned before, I think the newly educated and literate population and and the aspirations of younger people who didn't want to live in this kind of languishing economy presided over by an authoritarian, what was he by this time, octogenarian, right? You know, um, this is so out of step and out of keeping with where the country was going, Um, a young, hopefully up and coming country being led by a by an 80-something who just wanted to keep the lid on things. So he finally resigns, and then the CIA fly him out of the country to an exile in, oh, poor guy, Hawaii. (laughs) What was the U.S.'s position on him and everything that he had accomplished by this time? Well, they they held on to him for quite a while. It, It wasn't until the 28th or April that he resigned and was flown out of the country. There was a gap there of nine or 10 days from the sort of beginning of this violent demonstrations and and revolution to the point where the Americans really finally abandoned him. But I think that the Americans abandoning him was one of the key things which, which got him to go. What they were most interested in always and probably to extent still are is, is the stability, right? You know, we want someone to be more or less on our side, but we also want it to be stable. And when the kind of balance goes out of those two things, this guy's on our side, but it's, the situation's really unstable. It's very so, volatile. So we, we're we probably going to be better off with someone else. We just have to like hope that there's someone else who can step in. But this guy's toast. He's, he's gone. Yeah. What does he get up to once he hits Hawaii, him and the lady? Is it just let the good times roll? Surfs up. I've now got an image of him surfing in, you know, <laughs> in Waikiki Beach and like having a great time. Having um, some shaved ice. Yeah, yeah. Well, he was very, very much into his old age by this time. He, you know, he died of a stroke only a few years later in 1965. What exactly he did between 1960 and 65, I'm not sure, but I'm going to keep the image of him surfing. And, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, and what happens in... South Korea. So the the revolution in April 1960 does lead to a brief kind of opening of of South Korea, you know, a brief democratic opening. And it's actually amazing how fast they move because in the summer of 1960, they very quickly moved to completely revise the constitution. The, The political class there just decided quite quickly what is wrong here is that we've got the wrong kind of constitution. They changed it. I mean, I would say if you put it very crudely, they changed it from something more like an American system to something more like UK system. They did that very quickly in the summer. They they had a constitutional referendum. They had an election. The Democratic Party, which was essentially the old opposition to um, Syngman Rhee, uh, was elected to power. And to all intents and purposes, you had something that looked much more like a, a democracy with, with a much greater degree of freedom of speech, civil liberties, ability to form organizations, trade unions, all these kind of things which had been very difficult under Syngman Rhee. But it didn't last long. The drama continued. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it didn't last a year, basically, because by May of the next year, 
there was a lot of discontent within the army and then you have a, a, a military coup led mainly by this guy Park Chung-hee who becomes the leader of South Korea in, until 1979. Oh so you kind of a bit out of the frying pan into the yeah. fire. You have a sort of civilian authoritarian dictator in the form of Syngman Man Rhee and then a, a couple of years later you've moved to a military dictator. So you have a junta, there's continued student uprisings and democracy as we sort of know it. When does that actually take hold? Really, it's not until 1987. The first democratic elections are in 1987, although the great irony of those democratic elections is that they re-elected at that point a guy who was a military guy, um, had been the right-hand man of the previous dictator, John Duan. Go with what you know. Yeah. I mean, well, unfortunately, it was the real reason that they, they ended up with this guy in charge after 1987 was because the opposition was split. And uh, if the democratic opposition had got together, then the, then they wouldn't have had this other general in power. So. It's not until 1992 that you actually have a, the first kind of civilian president back in power mm. in South Korea. And um, so, so it's a long period, really, from the, from the time that Syngman Rhee comes to power in 48, pretty much all the way through to 92, until you actually have what could be described as a democratic government. Do you think there's a sense that the Americans hindered the process of stability by imposing their form of government, their idea of what democracy should be? I mean, it's a big what-if question, isn't it? What would have happened if if this hadn't happened, that hadn't happened? I think certainly there are historians like Bruce Cummings who argue in a way that Korea should have been left to itself to work out its problems. Maybe there would have been a civil war. Maybe the right and left would have fought each other. But at the end of that, it would have kind of cleared out the problems and and you know whereas what the americans did was to kind of just impose their solution on it and none of these problems were really uh, dealt with properly so yeah i think it's possible that there would still have been a violent and difficult situation as they were in many post-colonial countries trying to work out what kind of independence they wanted but perhaps korea would not have been stuck in various kinds of dictatorships for decades north and south oh and you spent several periods of your life living in south korea do people talk about Syngman Rhee now? Is there any statues up in Seoul? Park Chung-hee, the dictator who came after him, and Syngman Rhee are both still figures of major controversy in South Korea. And it's very difficult, I think, for South Koreans. You know, these are the two kind of foundational leaders of the country, and yet both of them are so divisive, uh, so violent in their own ways, um, corrupt in their own ways, that it's very difficult to talk about them with simply with pride. There are people who do. There are people who think they're the absolutely wonderful. And I think in recent years, say the last 10 years or so, there's been a bit of a revival of, of Syngman Rhee, a bit of a kind of, well, he wasn't so bad after all. You know, he did get the economy going after the war, even though it wasn't perfect. And he did found the, the nation and he was a staunch anti-communist. We would all be communists if it wasn't for him, etc. So there's that kind of view among a, a portion of the population, but it's not the majority. Is there a sense in that culture that for all of Sigmund Rhee's faults that they've ended up in a much better place than their friends and family across the border in North Korea? Yeah, I think there would be quite a lot of people in Korean society who would say that, particularly older generations um, would say, yeah, you know, we know he wasn't perfect. We know he had a lot of faults, but he did keep the North Koreans out. He stopped us becoming communist and he set us on the road eventually to sort of freedom and, and democracy. I think you would get people who said that. 
But equally, there are people who would prefer um, to, to, to sing the praises of Park Chung-hee, the other dictator, you know, because he's the man who, who created our economic miracle and, and um, made us a, you know, a wealthy country and, and all of that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, there are different kind of teams, I suppose you might say, in <laughs> right. South Korea. And I'm curious to know, what does the average South Korean think about the regime in North Korea? Like, did they just feel like they dodged a bullet by not being born north of the 38th parallel? Absolutely, yeah. I think most people in South Korea are, you know, think it's either somewhere on on the kind of spectrum between tragic and absolutely awful and, and horrific. I think a lot of young people in South Korea nowadays try not to think about North Korea much at all, really. It's not something that's much on their minds. They have much more problems close at home in terms of employment and various kind of things and and housing and all those things which affect young people all over the world. So North Korea is not the first thing. But if you were to ask them, yeah, I think they would say, no, I'm very glad I'm not there. Of course, there is a minority of people in South Korea who are, to some degree or other, pro-North Korean or see some kinds of um, positive aspects of, of North Korea, although probably a dwindling number of people nowadays. Well, he seems like he was a constant political hustler from a very young age. Where does he fall on the brutal dictator spectrum, do you think? I mean, does he go full Stalin, Idi Amin, or is he just sort of kicking around, uh, you know, Trump plus area? To me, I think he was more of a kind of improvised authoritarian, you know, I mean, he didn't have a sort of a blueprint, a plan in a a way like we're going to introduce all these different kinds of institutions which are going to lock in place my rule and which are going to control everybody's lives from top to bottom. Sometimes there are elements of that. Occasionally there are elements, uh, you know, points where there's more things edging towards a totalitarian end. But but most of the time, it's not that. I think it's much more improvised. I think the great contradiction and irony of Singh Man Rhee is that if you wanted to put him in a political place, it's kind of as a, a sort of certain kind of liberal. And I mean that in a much more old sense of a liberal, belie- believer in the in the sort of sanctity of the individual, in free trade, and all those kind of ideals of late 19th century um, US and, and to an extent Europe. And he was, a, he was a Methodist Christian as well, very staunchly Christian. And to him, these kind of values of individual liberty and Christianity were completely enmeshed with one another. And that seems such a contradiction to his authoritarian character. But I think if you trace his life, you can probably understand how he ends up in this strange, contradictory place. But yeah, he was brutal. He was a dictator. He wasn't a totalitarian. He wasn't a believer in a sort of completely controlled society. Owen, thank you so much. That has been a fascinating episode, full of nuance as well. And I feel, do I feel bad for saying he was nefarious? No, because he clearly is nefarious, Sigmund Reed. But you've, you've shown us a fuller picture of the man. So thank you very much. Thank you, Owen. Thanks. Well, Billy does it again, introduces <laughs> a topic that I've never heard of. And now I know so much more, thanks to Mr. Joel. He's done well, Casey. I think we've agreed on that. He's done really well to get a Singman Rhee reference into the song. We are currently looking at some images of Singman through the years. What have you found there? Well, he's always quite dapper. He's somebody who, I guess, as befits someone who's lived in America a very long time, has adopted a very urbane Western style of dress with three-piece suits, very well-fitting. And then also, at a certain point, we see him... uh, 
cozying up to General MacArthur. <laughs> this is this. a magnificent image. So MacArthur, of course, the general who flew him back to Korea to install him as leader of the Republic of Korea. MacArthur, <laughs> MacArthur has grabbed him in the ultimate power move. He's got his left hand tightly around his shoulder as if he's either about to headbutt him or kiss him on the lips. And then he has gripped Singman's right wrist in a death grip. Singman sort of looks delighted as he would do because MacArthur has just said to him, son, you're the next leader. But MacArthur's expression also seems to indicate, Katie, that he wants this to work out. And he wanted to work out on his and America's terms. Uh, Sigmund Rhee does look delighted, and he's wearing a very dashing Panama fedora. So another picture catches my eye, Tom, and it's Sigmund Rhee having a lovely little handshaking moment with what must have then been the vice president to Eisenhower, Richard Nixon. Nixon is looking classically Nixon, Katie, and he's got his big eating grin on his face. (laughs) Um, We're seeing his magnificent snoz in side profile so we can see it in its ski slope it's absolute ski slope beauty his hair is dark Singman is okay, he's very dapper again isn't he but he desiccated what, I'd describe him as desiccated he's an old man at this point <laughs> yes but what we're seeing here is the little sort of anti-communist power nexus stretching across the continents aren't we all we know about Nixon from our first Nixon episode all we will subsequently learn about Nixon in our future Nixon episodes he would love to meet a man like Singman Rhee who was all about cracking down on the commies yeah you want to you want that free to just purge your enemies when and where you feel like it. So there's probably a little bit of envy there coming from Nixon towards Mr. Ree. So that is Singman Ree. If you would like some more podcasts to listen to, make sure you've caught up with all those other episodes that Katie and I mentioned about North Korea, South Korea and Panmunjom. If you would like more chat from Katie and I in the meantime, please do follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Spread That Fire, Katie. Next week, what do we have? Well, this is a good one. It's payola. Payola sounds like a candy bar, not a candy bar. It's a massive musical stitch up. Massive musical stitch up. Get out your thread and needle. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. I'm Alison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty Podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty Podcast. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, 
we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.